0: Exploring the Word of God together allows us to share in the joy that comes from discovering the words of hope and salvation which overflow from our Bibles. Upper Room Media presents to you this educational, enlightening and entertaining Bible study. Prepare to be transformed. Psalm 2 is a unique psalm. And we're gonna go through it in a lot of details because Psalm 2 is one of those psalms. Remember when I was telling you, there is a lot of shifts that happen in psalms. You start with human feelings, human understandings, and all of a sudden something happens, psalms that change all that. Okay, Psalm 2, we use. We, usually, was was used for crowning a king. Crowning a king, because there's a verse that's very very famous there in that psalm when our Lord said. The Lord said to my God, you are my son, and today I have bore you. So this is one of the psalms that's extremely unique because it used to be used when a king is being ruled or crowned. It's actually one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. It's quoted in Matthew 3, Mark 1, Luke 3, Romans, and Acts. Actually, in the book of Acts, if you guys remember when uh, Acts 4, when John and Peter in front of the, the chief priest and the chief priest told them do not speak about Jesus anymore. When they went home in the book of Acts it says and being let go they went to their own companions and reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that they raised their voices to God and with one accord they said Lord you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is then. Who, I, who are by the mouth of your servant David said, Why did the nation rage and the people plot, in, plot vain things? So when suffering increased against the church, they remembered that psalm. They remembered that psalm. And it's interesting because this psalm is used for crowning a king, but it's also a psalm of suffering. And we will see this as we go, we go through it. The psalm is a cry of a person who's suffering for the sake of faith, for the sake of standing up for their morals. Maybe you want to comfort somebody and all of a sudden they responded in a weird way. Try to help somebody and they attacked you. Tried maybe to attend the funeral and you got a dirty look. This psalm is saying, why did the nation reach? Why are they plotting in vain? Okay? This psalm was written by David the prophet. And actually, a lot of people agree that the background of this psalm is in 2 Samuel chapter 10. And I'm going to read for you the background of this psalm so it helps you to understand where is this psalm coming from. It happened after that that the king of the people of Ammon died and Huan, his son, regained his place. And David said, I will show kindness to Hunan, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the ha- into the land of the people of Amun. And the princes of the people of Amun said to Huion, their lord, do you think that David really honors your father because he had sent comforters to you? Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? Therefore, Hunan took David's servants, shaved off their heads, cut off their garments in the middle, and uh, and sent them away. When they they told David, he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed. So what happened was, David the prophet, there is a king who died, his son ruled instead of him. So David the prophet said, "You know what? I'm going to send, I'm going to show kindness to this man." So he he sent some of his servants with gifts to to show kindness to this man. So the people in the kingdom went to that new king and told him, Do you think really David wants to show you kindness? No, no, no. These men are here to spy on you. So instead of repaying kindness with kindness, what did they do? They cut their clothes. They shaved their, be- shaved their beard. This is a sign of humiliation back then. So that's why David put them in a city in Jericho for some time until their beard grow. So when they go back to their city, they are not humiliated. So even though you will see that this psalm is written by David the prophet, a lot of what's in the psalm is written by the Holy Spirit that it does not apply to David, and we will see through this as we go through it. And and Saint Paul actually explained this in the book of Acts. He said, "And that He raised Him from the dead, and no, no more to return to the corruption. He He spoke this: I will give." You, the sure mercies of David, therefore, also in this another psalm, you will not allow your whole one to see corruption, for David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his father, and so corruption. So Saint Paul actually used this this Psalm to prove that David was prophesizing about the Messiah, not about himself. Doesn't make sense. One of the things that I want to talk about before we start the song. In the psalm, you will see a title that's called Son of God. Pay attention because this is important. And it helps you a lot with conversations with people outside the, the Christian faith. The, old, the, the expression Son of God, even though it seems very special in our eye, in our ears, but in the Old Testament, the expression Son of God was not that special. Israel was referred to as the son of God. Pious people were referred to as sons of God. The patriarchs, David, Isaac, were referred to as sons of God. Angels were referred to as sons of God. David was referred to as son of God. So that's why in the New Testament, when our Lord Jesus Christ was referring to himself, he used to like the expression son of man. Because the Son of Man expression was related to a prophecy in Daniel specific about the coming of the Messiah. And obviously, in a lot of of Roman times, they also used to refer to the kings as son of the gods. So the expression Son of Man is actually more unique. That's why sometimes when you read the New Testament, we see Jesus liked to use the expression more than the Son of God. Okay. So now I give you a little bit of background about the, the, the psalm. So this psalm was in response to David offering kindness. And all of a sudden, he received unkind action from people. Okay? Just get it in your note. Write this because it's going to help you. The psalm, we divide into four parts. The first part, we call the rebellions of the nation against God. From verse 1 to verse 3. The second part is God's condition during the rebellion from verse 4 to verse 6. From verse 7 to verse 9 is God's judgment. And from verse 10 to verse 12, the rule of the the Messiah on earth. That's basically the psalm. So we'll go through the psalm. The psalm is so beautiful and it will show you how to understand the shift that happens when we pray. The the shift that happens when we pray so the first verse in the psalms it starts with a question why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain things why are people acting the way they are you know when you go to work when you have a difficult boss or a difficult family member or a different friend and you're doing something good to them and they're acting weird you say this question why do the nation rage why do people act this way why are they making a big deal out of something small? That question, all of us ask that question. All of us come to prayer feeling that way. And the word people sometimes get trans- translated to warrior. Why do the nation rage? Why do the, war- and the, and the warriors plot a vain things against us? It's a war. Okay? This this verse here indicates two things. Number one, that the nations, they are rejecting the rule of God. Why do nations rage and plot vain things? They're not listening to God. They're plotting things. It's all vanity. It's It's not important. And it also shows that the psalmist has confidence in God because he says whatever they're plotting is vain. It's going to go to an end. It's going to go what? To an end. Some people might yani, attack you unexpectedly. And you be like, why? For example, in the crucifixion of the Jesus Christ, Pilate and Herod united together against Jesus. But the song starts with that question. Why? I am feeling this way. Why are you allowing evil things to happen? Why donation rage? Even though it's not going to matter at the end. Why all the anger? Okay? Verse 2 says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying. So he's saying, look, even though they are plotting in vain, but the vanity, whatever they're plotting, is a bit dangerous. He's saying the kings of the earth, all the powerful people of the earth, and the rulers are uniting together and coming against the anointed of the Lord. Even though I know, you know, whatever my manager does is not going to really matter at the end, but it, I feel it's dangerous. I feel it might cost me my job. Even though when people speak bad about me, I know it's at the end everything will be cleared up, but I, I am worried that people might get the wrong impression of me. Even though it's vanity, but still there is danger. Still there is danger. There's all these powerful people that are turning against me. Look, he's saying here what? The rebellion is against the Lord and his anointed. Even though they are really rebelling against David like we read in the in the in the in the story of 2 Samuel but he's saying they are rebelling also against God. Everything that happens to us as a church God is right next to us. God knows our feeling. God knows our suffering. God knows what we're going through. So here he's saying, I understand what you're going through. Now here he's also saying there is some sort of unnecessarily anger. Like these nations, these kings, are getting angry for nothing. But they're angry. Angry people scare us. And sometimes, even ourselves, we get angry for nothing. You start dwelling on the past you start getting angry. Sometime in the future, you might be overprotective, you start getting angry. So here he's saying what he's saying, this whole anger is unjustified. Okay? Look at it in verse 3. He says, they are getting angry, and what are they saying? They're saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast out their courts from us. What is, what is the kings of the earth when they are getting angry against the Messiah and his anointed? What are they saying? They're saying, let us break their bonds in pieces, the bonds in pieces and their courts from us. So in the old days, what used to happen is whenever a stronger nation occupies a smaller nation, they will enforce certain tax on them. And they also enforce them not to go to war without getting their permission. Or if the big nation goes to war, the smaller nation has to follow. So these what we used to call their chains, their bonds. So those kings said, you know what? We're no longer going to follow the king of Israel. We're no longer going to listen to him. We will be disobedient to the promises that we have made to him. Okay? And that's why, by the way, when we talk about the chains of God or the burden of God, we constantly talk about the commandments. So the kings of the earth have said, I will no longer listen to the bond of of the commandments. No longer will I obey the bond of love. No longer I will obey the bond of love. And you will see the, the verse here is using their. Their bonds, their cords. He's talking about God and his anointed. Because David the prophet is an image of God. So he's saying, look... Whatever the rules are, whatever their system is, I will no longer want to follow it. For us as a, as a spiritual people, we understand this. I know that the people of the world they're getting angry, they're doing all these things, and they don't want to follow God. They don't want to follow his commandments. And this is how we sometimes as Christians feel when we stand and pray. If I am walking with God, I stand God I'd be like, God, why all the, all these anger against me? All what I did was I tried to help. All what I did was I said a statement of truth. Why are people angry that I said a statement of truth? So after that first three verses, when he expresses how the nation are rebellion and angry, and he's expressing the human emotion, Now we're gonna get into a part where sometime it becomes a little bit difficult for people to understand. The the person who's talking in this song is almost, you can think of him as a narrator. They're speaking, saying the story. A narrator who's speaking to the story by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, look, these are my feelings. I feel that the nation are getting angry and they're doing these things and they're committing and they're not following the, the bonds of God. They're not following the commandments of God. They're not showing love. They're not doing any of this stuff. This is how I feel. Now, his projection, his understanding of the person who's talking through the psalm or through every human soul, he'd be like, man, but those people don't know how strong God is. So from verse 4 to verse 6, it's almost as if the psalmist is going to look into heaven. And he says what? He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in the Russians and any mockery. The Lord shall mock them. And basically he's saying these people think they are so strong. These people think they can attack us. These people think all this stuff. Well, they don't know how strong God is. The God just, if he says one word, he can destroy all of you guys. He's shifting his understanding from what's happening on earth to his own projection of what will happen in heaven. By the way, be careful. These are all human understanding of God. The nature of God, as we always learn, nature of God is simple. Simple means I cannot add anything to him. I cannot take anything from him. So I cannot make God laugh. I cannot make him cry. So what the psalmist is saying, it's his own project projection of how amazing God is. If he sees these people who are acting up, just you know, one word, one angel can kill 185,000 people. It's all what it takes. Now, in verse 5, he says, Then he shall speak to them in his wrath, and distress them in his deep pleasure. So this, this psalmist is so angry. He's saying, people are angry against me. They're attacking me. I'm trying to do all these good things. And they don't know the God I have. The God that I have is so powerful. He can laugh at them. If he says one word, he can, de- I, he can destroy them. They don't understand the God I have is so powerful. God can actually, he can get angry at them and he can destroy them. This is all human. By the way, all this part is a reflection Of human feelings in prayer. When you pray when you're angry. That's usually what happens. You wish that you could pray. Like one of the disciples. And tell Jesus bring fire to destroy those people. From heaven. For how much they're upsetting me. There's one thing I want you guys to keep in mind. A lot of times in the scripture. When it says God's wrath. Or God's anger the consequence that happens after is completely different from every single human expectation. For example, God was angry at Abraham when he lied about his wife. What happened? Did he get punished? No. God said, look, all the gifts that you have taken from Egypt, take it with you as a gift. There was a king of Judah who was going to war. And God sent him a prophet and told him, Look, do not ask for help from foreign nations. And God is going to help you. Just ask for any sign and God will give it to you. And the king of Israel was worried. He said, If I ask for a sign and God gives it to me, then I have to depend on God. I don't depend on God. So he still continued to ask for help from other nations. So God got so angry with him. And what did God do? He said, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. He said, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counsel, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. When God got so mad in the Bible, he said, I'm going to send my son. St. Augustine says something beautiful. He says, God's anger is the emotion that occurs in the mind of someone who knows God's law when it sees it that say, the same law being transgressed by a sinner. So saying when we think of God's anger, it's more of our human projection of how God should respond when his law are being broken. Do you guys understand? Is that clear? So when the Bible speaks about God's anger, it's more of how we as human view how God should respond when somebody breaks his law. Up to this point, up to this point, it's all human feelings and human understanding. A person is going to God and tell him, God, how could you allow evil to happen? These people are raging against me in vanity. And you're so powerful. You can destroy them. You can do all this stuff. Huh, let's take an action. What's the action God's going to take? Verse 6. This is God's response. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. What's the response of God? God said, I am going to bring my king, our Lord Jesus Christ, in my holy city of Zion jesus will come and the city will become holy all these people who are getting angry against you they're going to see the holiness that's going to change and come and change everybody change everybody in the city and they will see god through you and by the way this verse you might feel you might feel like i'm, I'm extrapolated but i'm going to show you that as we continue this is exactly what's going to happen He said, "My response to your anger is that I will sit my king in the holy hills of Zion. God will reign. That's how God is responding to your anger. Okay? This is how our prayer changes when we pray. This is how our prayer changes when we pray. So verse 7 to verse 9 is God is going to decree his actual judgment. See what he says in verse 7. I will declare the decree. decree. So what is God is going to declare? The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So God's response to my misery, to my situation, to my problem is something unique. God has said, I am going to open for you a door of adoption. I will adopt you. You are my son, today I have begotten you. I want to stop here for one second to explain the word son. In the old testament, the concept of the fatherhood of God was not very clear. The expression or the relationship of God expressing himself as a father was only mentioned in the Old Testament fifteen times. In the whole book, in the whole book of the Old Testament. But it usually indicated the authority of the father. So God, for example, be like, Master deserves an honor, a father deserves an obedience. So it's more of a fatherhood that is of control, a fatherhood that deserves an honor from you. Now, in the New Testament, the concept of adoption became much different. The Gospel of John Refers the the, uses the word Father a hundred times just the Gospel of John alone. Matthew thirty one, Luke eight. So God is saying, if you are going through a a problem, if you're going through unreasonable tribulation in your life, I am gonna come and I'm gonna adopt you. How? It's gonna happen through the work of my Son. You are my son, today I have begotten you. By the way, this this is the verse, that's why a lot of people use this verse in a crowning a king. Because it talks about the the eternal relationship between the father and the son. How can you speak to somebody who has not yet been born? Told him, today you are my son, today I have begotten you. So he's having a conversation with him before he's begotten. Which talks about how the son is eternal. The Lord says... I will decree this, that I will send my son. He will be, big, he will be, born of the virgin, and I'm gonna open for you a door of adoption. I'm gonna open for you a door of adoption. That's why you see in Luke three twenty-one to twenty-two, it says a voice came from heaven which said, "You are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased." And God could open for us, all of us, a way where we can become children of God. Okay? The, the one thing I just want to keep in mind, the only ex- exception where God would refer to somebody as his son was the king of Israel. And that was always an exception to point to the coming of Christ. Jesus becoming the king of Israel. We'll see this, for example, in 2 Samuel 7.14. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him and the rod of men and with the, with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. So this is the consequence that God has given us now. If you are struggling... If you're going to prayer and suffering, God is saying, I am going to make you my son. I'm going to make you my daughter. Ask me, and I will give you the nation for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth you shall, shall be for your possessions. St. Didemus uh, the uh, says, these words are spoken for our sake. Not for the sons. They indicate that something is given not to the son, but to the people who belong to him. He's saying that the promise of having all the nation for inheritance is not only for the son, but all of us. Jesus said this. He said, all what I was given, I will give it to you. The kingdom of God will be made known to all nation. Which is unusual to a Jewish person to hear. He says, I will give you all the nations. This is exactly what happened after our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus came, all the nations became Christian. All the nations became Christian. And the gospel was preached everywhere. So the response, this is how the prayer shifts. I come with so much burden in my prayer. And I'm telling God, God, I'm worried. And God says, I'm going to give you a promise that all the problems that you see on the earth, all these issues you see, it will be completely changed. And I'm going to adopt you. And you will have a heritage. This heritage will be over all nations. This heritage will be over all nations. I'll tell you guys a story so you can wake up. I, I remember, that when I was working... As a, as at one of my companies, I had a very nice boss. He was very good. I liked him, and he liked me. And then later on, the company was downsizing. So a lot of people said that he was at a very high risk of losing his job. So he started to act very aggressive. Understandably, he, he might lose his job, so he's acting kind of was a bit aggressive. So all of a sudden, he's micromanaging, he's just fighting over everything is arguing over everything and then I go home and I pray God please help me Let, teach me how to deal with this guy and then I was speaking with somebody and asked their advice I told them I don't know what to do and they asked me they told me did you pray for him I said no I prayed for myself I didn't pray for him but they said why don't you pray for him so I spent the next few days praying for him And at the end of the week, something happened, never expected. He got promoted. And when he got promoted, he became super, 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 super nice. And he felt much more comfortable. And as I was reading the psalm, this is what came to my mind. Sometimes the results that we want is vengeance and punishment. But what God is offering is peace and prosperity to all. You're angry at people. You're coming to pray with anger. But God is saying, wait a second. Come, bring all your emotion. Bring it up, bring it up, bring it up. But remember, my decree is different. Verse 9. He says, you shall break them with the rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. What is this verse saying? Think about it this way. What is verse 8 saying? It's saying that God will give you all the earth as your inheritance. So it does not mean that God is saying once he's going to give you the inheritance, he's going to dash it into pieces. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, like Origen said, who who gives someone inheritance so he can destroy it into pieces? But he's saying that the, the broken pieces are the broken hearts. So once God rules... The, the, through Jesus into the kingdom of the whole earth. You can have a lot of broken hearts. You know what's ironic? Is the only nation actually. That was broken into pieces was Israel. It was in Jeremiah 19.10. But the Gentiles were actually allowed God to rule over their hearts after the coming of Jesus and until now, it's been almost 2000 years and Jesus is ruling, is, 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 is ruling over the hearts of billions of people. Billions of people. One of the things that's so beautiful is that the same exact expression that we just read today is mentioned three times, one for the Christians and one for Christ in the book of Revelation. I'm going to read a part of you to, to explain this. And he said, And he who overcomes and keeps my work until the end, to him I will give him power over the nations. He shall rule them with the rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like part vessel, as I also have received from my father. So what is this verse saying? He's saying, look, if you win, if you fight, you will become somebody who will dash the heart of people into pieces. And you will rule over it. Just like Christ rules over it. You're coming angry because people are attacking you for no reason. God has said, I will adopt you. I will make you my son. And I will give you, once you overcome these feelings and these emotions, I will give you the grace that the heart of those people will be broken down. And you will rule over their hearts. Can you imagine? This is the work of Christ. This is the work of the psalm. It takes my feelings, it turns it into a conversion to Christ. A conversion to Christ. So at the end, it's not a psalm of revenge. It's a psalm of adoption to God. Now look at verse 10 to verse 12. Is the end of the psalm. It talks about the rule of the Messiah. Now therefore be wise, O king, be instructed, you judges of the earth. God is saying, look, I'm going to rule. I want you to see my rule because I'm patient. God is saying, be wise, be instructed. The rule of God is patience. The rule of God is patience. And patience... And wisdom and warning are different from authority. So God is saying, when you rule over people's hearts, learn what I'm going to do. Be wise. Be patient. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. This is, a lot of times we in in, in the American, in the Western culture, we don't like the word, the fear of God. I want to just tell you something very small. People usually, even a lot of scientists would say that we all need a a healthy level of anxiety in our life. If you have zero anxiety, you will have no shame. And if you have too much anxiety, you're going to fall into a lot of mental illness. So there's a a healthy part of worries, a a healthy part of anxiety that keeps us within our social norms. Doesn't make anyone of you guys scream in the middle of the church. Right, or just go jump around. There's a source of some sort of a social norm, some sort of anxiety that keeps me within my social norm. That fear of God is extremely important because it helps me to appreciate God. There are two extremes. An extreme that sees God, oh God is nice, God is sweet, God is lovely, I can sin and he forgives me and it's no problem. And that that person never appreciates who God is and never knows how to worship him it becomes a very selfish relationship and you can't love somebody if you're selfish that way and the other type is so scared god is going to punish me god is waiting for me to make a mistake god is not going to say these are two extremes there is a level of healthy fear of god and here he says serve the lord with fear and rejoice with trembling he's talking to the nations whom they have been affected by the work of Christ and by the work of the children of Christ. And he's telling them, serve God in fear. And then look back at the last verse, it's so beautiful. He says, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled, but a little, blessed are those who put their trust in the Lord. What does he mean, kiss the son? You will see this in 1 Samuel 10. When Samuel went to ordain Saul, see what happens. Then Saul, then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on the head of Saul and kissed him, and said, "It's not because the Lord has anointed you commander over His inheritance." That kiss, with a sign of royal invitation. God is saying. There is really two options. He's saying, "Come, you're invited to royal, to royal, relationship with God." Okay, but then he's saying, "But his anger is kindled by little." Almost the expression reminds me in the in the in the New Testament when God says, "Repent, for the kingdom is near." He's saying that God wants you to hurry up. Repent. So what is happening here? God is using the two means that could help people repent. Remember I was talking to you about the two extremes. One, God is going to kiss you to make you ro- royal. Look at all the promises that God is giving you. But also be careful because the time might pass. Your, fl- your life flies by so quickly and you might not have time to Repent. And then the last thing says, Blessed are those who put their trust in him. He's he's telling, he's telling, he's telling almost if you guys remember the first psalm started with blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, and this verse this psalm says ends by blessed are those who put their trust in him. And a lot of people said that these two psalms were highly connected. One starts with blessed, and the second one ends with blessed. But I want you to see how this how the flow of the prayer is happening. The psalm starts by me expressing so much anger, so much rage. There's no reason why people are doing this. And God is so strong. I'm going to pray and God should just destroy all those people who are are giving me hard time and mock them and laugh at them. And God says, wait, 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 wait. I I heard you, but the solution is I'm going to dwell in Zion. I'm going to dwell in you. I'm going to make you holy and I'm going to make you my son. Whatever Jesus has, I will give you. And then all the hearts of the people who were hardened against you will be into pieces. They will show you so much love and kindness. And you will rule over their hearts. Those who accepted the message of my son. And to all those people who, because of my work in you, are affected and changing, I'm calling them to fear God and to worship Him and to tremble. I'm calling Him to be royal. And then at the end, God is calling you and me, says what? Trusts. Blessed is the one who puts his trust in God. That change in prayer requires me to trust God. You see... The psalm when you pray it, you go in very angry, you come out, you see that you need to serve everybody else. You come very angry, you feel that there is justice, injustice has been imposed against you, you come out feeling, I need to actually serve people like our Lord did. That's why Jesus, remember last last lecture I told you, Jesus said that when he explained the His life to the to the apostles, he used the Psalms to to explain to people. How can people understand the Psalm without knowing Jesus? It's not going to make sense. When did when did God allow David to rule all over the nations? Never happened. And this is, by the way, the effect of prayer. I come angry, emotional, upset, and God turns it into a time of peace and a time of praying and serving other people. And glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. Let's uh, have uh, Ilaria and Tony lead us in a couple of songs. This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart and we pray that it will not only inform you but will also transform you and your life with Christ.